0: It's always interesting. You want to get out your sermon outline? It says the kingdom prophecy on it. Have that so you can follow along. We're in Matthew chapter 17. We have sort of a split section today. We have read verses 9 through 13 and then 22 and 23. And so if you would get out your Bibles, or look up your Bibles on your device, or read along in the bulletin, you have a number of options. Let's get God's Word in front of us. Now listen carefully so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures, making us your people, as always, you bring us back to this amazing gospel to learn about your son, Jesus. We have some confusing teaching this morning, so we need your grace to understand it, to understand why you keep telling us about your suffering and your death, to understand what it means uh, for living the Christian life. And so open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus, help us to learn from him this morning. In Jesus' name. We ask these things, amen. Back in 2005, uh, the late Steve Jobs told a class of graduating students at Stanford University, uh, quote, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? The idea is that we should live each day as if it were our last. And that's not a new idea, of course, and it's supposed to inspire us, you know, go skydiving, rocky mountain climbing, and the like. But I'm pretty sure if it was the last day of my life, I would not be getting on a bull named Fu Manchu. So, and if you're not familiar with the song, God loves you more. But how would you live this day, if it wasn't your last day, but say it's the 19,718th to last day, or the 8,657th to last day. And you can now find that out. Because there's a new watch called Ticker, and it claims to have created a way to calculate approximately when, according to its creators, a person is likely to die, and it can input that date into a wristwatch. And rather than tell the hour and the minute, This new watch counts down the years, months, days, hours, minutes, and seconds of a person's life. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) Olga Kazan of The Atlantic magazine explains, Ticker projects the wearer's time of death based on a medical history questionnaire. And then the countdown begins. And the idea is that being constantly reminded of his or her own mortality will nudge the wearer to live life to the fullest by motivating wearers to, quote, make every second count. And the creators of the Death Watch aim for, that's what they call it, the ticker Death Watch. They aim for no less to make the world a better place. Reading from their website, it says, while death is non-negotiable, life isn't. The good news is that life is what you make of it, and it can be beautiful. Ticker is a wristwatch that counts down your life from years to seconds and motivates you to make the right choices. The company, which is a Kickstarter project turned real thing, writes on its website, Ticker will be there to remind you to make the most of life and most importantly, to be happy. All we have to do is learn how to cherish the time that we've been given, to honor it, suck the marrow from it, seize the day, and follow our hearts. And the best way to do it is to realize that the seconds, days, and years are passing never to come again. And to make the right choices, get happy, I tell you. Quick, you only have 57 years, 6 months, and 23 seconds left. Get happy, for Pete's sake. So The watch has helped the ticker team to create a bucket list, which has items like, you can actually look this up, perpetually lay on a beach. Quit my job and watch every movie I always wished I had watched. And of course, tell the girl at the coffee place that I love her. Hey, coffee place girl, would you like to spend the next 473,354 hours with me? We'll be watching old movies on the beach. Of course, now it's only looking like 60 hours because I no longer can buy food because I quit my job. (laughs) Can't make it up. Ticker might be the newest example, but tokens of mortality are as old as the ancients, reminders of the inevitability of death called memento mori, which means remember that you will die. They're found throughout the ages in a whole variety of ways. Poems, dances, paintings, etchings, pendants, sculptures, pictures, even chapels made of bones. And you can Google chapel made of bones and you'll be surprised how many of those are out there. In the late medieval period, when the Black Death took the lives of half the people in some populations, the allegorical ritual of the danse macabre, the Dance of death, came about. It's a personified death who marches with the participants to the grave. It's still seen today in New Orleans, a somber but playful reminder that death comes to all and quickly to many. Such tokens of mortality are ancient. During the Victorian age, when photography was newly fangled, uh, photos of the recently deceased became a common memento mori, and we still see that today. If you go to a wake uh, at a funeral home, it's very common people will put up pictures of the deceased to, give you, to show you something of their life. And we all do that. We show, today we show videos. Um, it's very common. And so the forms of these tokens have uh, evolved from the organic, from bones and poems and dances, to the mechanic, to photographs and videos and death watches. But while these things change, our need to remind ourselves of our mortality is not new. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 39, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. And this prayer is what Ticker hopes to address. They say, imagine someone told you you only had one year left to live. How would that change your life? But alas, Ticker's Carpe Diem mission is in itself merely mortal. They say, again, quoting from their website, Ticker will be there to remind you to make the most of your life and most importantly to be happy. It's not how much time you have, it's what you do with it. And wearing a Ticker is a statement to the world that your biggest priority in life is living. So if you'll bear with me for a few of your 28.4 million moments left, There's a few caveats. First of all, insurance and retirement companies and pension companies have been using death clocks for years that aim to calculate longevity. There's evidence that their estimates vary pretty widely, even for the same person, and there's about a 50% chance you're going to outlive your deadline. Of course, there's also a chance that, like Narcissus, you will become so distracted by your tickers, elegant beauty, or actuarial precision, that you'll cross the street without looking and get hit by a bus. The psalmist says there's a different purpose for keeping our mortality in front of us. Psalm 89, we read, Remember how short my time is, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. Because the real measure of our days is not against the clock. But it's against eternity. It's not against just this life, but all life. So what does that have to do with Matthew chapter 17? Quite a bit, actually. You see, Jesus certainly didn't need a ticker death watch. And he certainly didn't have one, but he didn't really need one. He knows what's coming. He knew that suffering and death are in his near future. Some passages imply that he knew not only when this would happen, but the who, what, where, why, and how as well. And often when preaching through the Gospels, we talk about the already and the not yet. And with Christ's uh, earthly ministry, some things have already arrived and some things have not happened yet. And in our earthly lives, some aspects of the kingdom are uh, presently here, the already. And some aspects of life in the kingdom haven't begun yet. They're not yet. We don't receive it all. We don't understand it all. We don't get it all. This side of heaven. So the Christian life has parts that are already in place and parts that are not yet in place. And it's no different in Jesus' day. And knowing that helps us to understand this passage because it immediately follows the transfiguration the demonstration of the glory of God in the person of Christ. And through this filter of the already and not yet, we can see how the disciples respond and react and how we're supposed to respond and react. So we'll start with the not yet. Verse 9, not yet, first blank there. It says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now on the way down the mountain the next morning after the Transfiguration, Jesus tells his disciples to keep quiet about what they had seen until after the resurrection. And the reason's obvious, he doesn't want them to relate stories that would fan this misguided expectation of a political Messiah. He needs to go to the cross before the nature of his work is fully known. But as you can imagine, it had to have been extremely difficult for the disciples to keep this glorious vision to themselves. What they saw was amazing. I imagine they're bursting at the seams. They can't wait to tell everyone uh, what just happened, or at least the other disciples. And Jesus says, tell no one. Just as he had told the twelve in the last chapter in Matthew 16, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. And now he tells the three, Peter, James, and John, to tell no one of this manifestation of his glory. So why does he do this? See, the Christ that most Jews of that day were expecting was not the Christ who had actually come. They'd read the Old Testament enough to know that it promised there'd be a kingdom of God on earth and Israel would be returned to the head of the nations. And they're looking forward to that. Remember, they're currently under Roman oppression which followed the Greek oppression, which followed the Persian oppression, which followed the Babylonian oppression, which followed the Assyrian oppression, and all in all, they're getting pretty sick of being oppressed. They can't wait for the prophecies to be fulfilled. There is throughout the land a messianic expectation that the king is coming and they would be the head of the nations again, and they would rule and reign with the Messiah, and they couldn't wait. But they overlooked the fact that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it also states that Messiah, when he comes, would offer a work of redemption and would suffer and die for sin. They had, in effect, laid all the stress upon the glory and completely omitted the suffering. Consequently, they are looking for a political kingdom, and particularly a political kingdom, without the suffering, without the cross. And our Lord knew that instead of coming to conquer, he'd come to die. Instead of coming in a glory, he came in humble uh, meekness. Instead of coming to deliver the Jews from political bondage, he came to deliver people from sin's bondage. For the people who have learned about the transfiguration that would have only incited them to try to make Jesus into a worldly king to fulfill their worldly expectations. So he warns the disciples not to say anything about what they had seen on the Mount of the Transfiguration. And when they heard that story again, were reminded of it after he had risen from the dead. It would then be clear to them that he had not come to conquer the Romans, but he had come to conquer sin and death. But what's going on right now? That's the not yet. What about the already? That's the next section, verse 10 to 13, the already. And the disciples asked him, Why then? Or then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Put yourself in the place of the disciples. They've just seen something that's absolutely incredible, and they're still trying to process it. I imagine they're wondering, you know, what in the world did we just see? And Then Jesus tells them to be quiet about it. And clearly they don't get it. The disciples are puzzling over what they witnessed, so they they counter with a question. They had seen Moses and Elijah uh, up there with Jesus. It caused them to wonder about Elijah's role as the forerunner of the Messiah, which was prophesied in the very last verses of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So these verses are used by the scribes and teachers of the law to say that Elijah had to come before the Messiah, that he was the forerunner. But how could it be that the Messiah, whom the disciples now believe Jesus to be, is already here, and he's about to carry out his work, and yet... They haven't seen Elijah. So they think, well, we just saw Elijah. He was on the mountain with Jesus. So we have to tell everybody. So their question, their problem, their dilemma can be taken a couple ways. First, it can be taken simply as a chronological problem. You know, if you're the Messiah, what about Elijah? And how can you be the Messiah when the teachers say that Elijah has to come first? Because you're already here. So because that word first is in there, many people think the disciples' question is a a problem with the sequence. You know, Jesus, you're getting things out of order. But really, I think it's a theological problem. The understanding of the question comes from, again, the anticipated nature of Elijah of the prophet's ministry. Malachi taught that Elijah would bring about the restoration of all things. And if Elijah's going to do that and bring people into a right relationship with God as the forerunner, as a precondition of the Messiah's coming, then why does the Messiah need to die? If, if everybody's already restored, you know, then who's going to reject him? The theologian D.A. Carson says, their confusion is not merely chronological who comes first but it refers back to their fundamental inability to make sense of this combination of glory and suffering. The witness of the transfiguration glory of Jesus had, if anything, confirmed them in their misunderstanding. So whichever way their question, whichever way it means, whether it's chronological or theological or both, Jesus answers it in verse 11. He says, Elijah does come, will restore all things. But I tell you, he's already come. And they did not recognize him. They did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Saying the scribes were right to insist that Elijah comes before the Messiah. But they were wrong in failing to see that he had in fact already come. They're wrong in their interpretation of this idea of restoration. Restoration. They thought that meant it would be this perfect messianic age. But that's not a given, even in Malachi, because it ends with that basically if the people don't repent, God will return and strike the land with utter destruction. So Jesus is making it clear that the work of Elijah has been done by John the Baptist, and the people hadn't repented at his teaching, and the only thing they can reasonably expect from God is judgment. We already know that John the Baptist is functioning in the role of the forerunner prophet, this future Elijah. Because when his birth was announced, the angel told his father, Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Directly quoting from Malachi. This is before John the Baptist is even born. This is at the announcement of his birth. And Jesus earlier said, back in Matthew 11, if you're willing to accept it, talking about John the Baptist, he is Elijah, who is to come. However, since the religious leaders had uh, mistreated and killed John the Baptist, and the political leaders mistreated, killed John the Baptist, Why should Jesus expect any different treatment? By calling attention to this pattern, he's reinforcing his teaching it's necessary for him to suffer and die. That's the second most important thing that he taught. The first was who he was. First lesson, Matthew 16, who do you say that I am, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's lesson number one. And Peter, James, and John have been given a glimpse of his glory on the mountain, just as we've been given a glimpse of his future glory in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. But that's for later. What's needed now is that the followers of Christ deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. Before glory, there must always be a cross. There must always be suffering. And that's the second lesson. Again, Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The Gospel of Luke says that on the mountain, Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus, Luke 9, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his suffering and death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So when the voice said, listen to him, one thing involved is their need to listen to what he has to say about his own suffering and death. And you you either understand what Jesus is teaching, that suffering and death is the road to glory, or you don't. It's clear. Jesus tells us this five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And yet the disciples aren't getting it. They're not understanding it. They're missing the lesson, which is the blanks. I forgot to leave blank for you. Which I didn't realize until after I printed 140 copies. They were missing the lesson. We jump down to verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So we've had this interesting conversation about Elijah. Jesus tells them, back in chapter 16, I'm the Messiah, but I am going to suffer and die. You remember what happened? Peter went nuts. He says, wait a minute, no way, that's not the program. We go from strength to strength. We're going to put down our enemies. And he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus immediately responds by rebuking Peter, telling him, get behind me, Satan. Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And The declaration of Jesus Christ and his person and work establishes the foundation for eternal citizenship in God's kingdom. What's the gospel? It's the truth that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, became part of the human race so he might die in our place, bearing God's judgment against us, be buried in a tomb and three days later rise from the dead to demonstrate that God accepted his sacrifice for us and that sin, death, and Satan has been eternally conquered. And upon that foundation rests our citizenship in God's kingdom. Every detail that Jesus explains in these two verses, there's importantly in establishing the basics of the gospel. He says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, showing both the guilt belonging to humanity, but magnifying also the grace of God. Submitting to the Father's design, Jesus willingly yields himself to the betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And though Judah served as the betrayer, and the Jewish religious leaders as the accusers, and the Romans as the executioners, All of us share in the guilt of his death. And here we find the mercy and grace of God magnified by the fact that the eternal Son of God yielded himself to the hands of men so that our sin and our guilt might be removed. The same Son of God endured the suffering and agony of death to glorify God the Father who purposed to forgive sinners and bring them into a right relationship with himself. Then he says, and they will kill him. Jesus declared that. It's interesting, through the centuries, all sorts of different groups have tried to find a way to approach God apart from the death of Christ. There's been all sorts of ingenious theories emerging to avoid the fact that God's forgiveness required the death of his son. Eternal justice stands in the balance at the cross this public display of Jesus and his death as the divine satisfaction fulfilling God's justice so that he, in turn, could then justly forgive sinners. No kingdom citizenship exists apart from the cross. No cross. You're in hell. There's no salvation apart from the cross. There's no sonship through God adopting us into his family. We just sang about being adopted as sons and daughters of God. There is no adoption without the cross. Plain and simple, God could not forgive and save anyone apart from the satisfaction of his justice. And Christ felt the agony of God's justice for us at the cross. He had to die the eternally innocent on behalf of the eternally guilty, so that the guilty, us, could be declared righteous and become citizens of God's kingdom forever. And how do we know that God accepted the death of his son, the sacrifice of his son on our behalf? Jesus explains he'll be raised on the third day. The resurrection serves as the divine exclamation point that God is fully satisfied in the death of his son. Nothing more can be added. No more debt for our sins is owed. Christ has conquered every foe internally and externally, everything that stands between God and us. And with this conquering comes our kingdom citizenship. Citizenship in the United States was secured on the battlefields at Yorktown and Concord and Bunker Hill. But kingdom citizenship for uh, believers in the kingdom of God is secured on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus, who's our eternal champion, went alone to the cross where he died. But three days later, he rises from the dead to ever lead his kingdom as the everlasting eternal king. All of this is good news, which is the literal meaning of the word gospel, except for the disciples. They didn't think it was such great news. They didn't think it was good news. We read, they were greatly distressed. That word implies deep sorrow. They can't get over Jesus' impending suffering and death. Evidently, Christ's promise of resurrection, which he's already now promised three times, either doesn't make sense to them or they just can't hear it over the news of his impending death. So there's great irony here, while Jesus is declaring the good news, all that will be accomplished, the disciples plunge deeper into sorrow. And Jesus, you know, when he says he'll be raised on the third day, he's still referring to his death because you have to be raised from something, which means he's referring to his death. And again, Peter pushes back, he's a little cagier about it, you know, in these verses. You know, he asks about Elijah. Where's Elijah? Elijah's supposed to come first. And he's, you know, you're sort of implying that we just saw Elijah. He was up there on the mountain. He's here, day of the Lord. What's up with all this suffering talk? You don't need to suffer. Elijah's here. It's time to take over. And Jesus just lays him out flat. He says, why then is it written the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? I tell you, Elijah's come, they've done to him everything they wish, just as it was written, and he's letting them know in no uncertain terms, the new Elijah was John the Baptist, and he came, and he suffered, and he died, and I'm the new Moses, and I'm just not going to lead the people out of political bondage like the old Moses, but I'm going to lead them out of bondage to sin and death itself, but I have to suffer and die too. And I think what he's telling us And what he says to those of us who are slow of heart to believe calls us a foolish and twisted generation. He's talking to me, he's talking to you, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to all of us, to everyone. And essentially he's saying, this is is the program. Suffering should be part of your program. Anytime suffering comes up, the idea that to follow me means you're going to have to suffer You guys just freak out. In this world, you have tribulation, and the only way I can come into a world of tribulation and to save it is go through suffering to glory. And I'm here, says Jesus, going through suffering to glory. And if you follow me, you'll have to go through suffering to glory. But every time you hear there's suffering involved, every time I let suffering happen to you, every time it looks like following me means suffering, you freak out, you go nuts, you say, no, 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 you shouldn't be letting this happen. Why is God letting this happen? Why is God letting that happen? He says, in this world you will have tribulation no matter who you are, where you are, uh, what you're doing. It's life. So there's really only one question left to be answered. And that's how will you respond. How will you respond? Will that tribulation, will the inevitable suffering that you experience, will that make you wiser, deeper, stronger, sweeter? Or is it going to make you bitter, hard, and joyless? Is it going to drive you closer to God or drive you away from God? Will it make you more compassionate about other people or will it make you more cynical about human nature? In this world, you'll have tribulation. You have to see that, says Jesus. There's a way of going through suffering to glory. And I'm on that path, and if you follow me, you'll be on that path too. So what is the key? What will keep the tribulation from turning us hard and bitter and joyless? What's the key that will allow the inevitable suffering of life make us wiser and deeper and stronger and sweeter? What will make us more like Jesus and turn us into something glorious? And I think the answer, as we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is simply worship. If you come off the mountain remembering the reality of the glory of God, even though most of your time and most of your life you don't see that, it's not always clear. It's not always real. It's not usually right in front of you. It's not that vivid. In a sense, the only way to get back to that is through worship. The only way to get back to be reminded of that reality of the glory of God and the person of Christ is through worship. It's the ability to know what the Father has done through the Son, that sense on your heart of that reality, even though you don't have it right there in front of you all the time. If you have that sense of the person and work of Jesus Christ, you come off that mountain and you go on this journey to the cross, that will turn you into something glorious instead of something hard. And in some ways, it's too easy a lesson. Because when I look at this, and I don't want to admit, and I guess I'm assuming that you don't want to admit it either, that Jesus really says, in this world you will have tribulation. We don't want to admit that. We think if we're smart or if we're good, you know, secular people of northern Virginia think, well, if you have one problem after another problem, it's probably because you're not smart. And Christian people think, well, if you have one problem after another problem, you're just not good. These things wouldn't happen if you were confessing sin and living according to biblical principles. And Jesus says, what greater biblical principle is there than I took up a cross? You have to take up a cross. The world hated me, the world's going to hate you. I had to suffer to get to glory and resurrection. So will you. What greater principle can there be than you have to do what I did? You have to go through, to a much lesser degree, but like I did. You have to follow in my steps. Jesus is saying, he's telling us, through worship, you have access to the very presence of God. You have to be very clear in your mind about my glory, my person and work, who I am, what I've done, what God is doing uh, then and now and in the future through me. The whole idea of the transfiguration and the disciples' response was to give them a foretaste of glory, a foretaste of the resurrection, a foretaste of the second coming. You have to have a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth, of that embrace that God is going to give you because you know Jesus Christ. You have to have a foretaste of that because your life, this life, is a long journey to the cross. But if you have those foretastes and you follow that journey to the cross, it will turn you into something glorious. Otherwise, you may not make it. So how do you get that foretaste of heaven? We haven't been up on the mountain. We haven't had a transfiguration. And we're not Peter, James, and John. How do you get that sense of worship? How do you experience the presence of God? Look behind me. Right over here. God is saying, I'll give you a foretaste, that sense, that experience in the sacraments of my son. If you come in faith, This meal that we're about to have, which we call communion, which is called the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, it's a communal event. It's about doing this together and eating together. It's about fostering true engagement with God and repenting of your sins and professing your faith and experiencing the full grace of being a Christian. When you come to this table, you're declaring that suffering and death is the road to Christ and his glory, as we'll read in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And everything that his death means, you are proclaiming what Jesus did, who he was. The physical act, you don't even have to say anything getting up and coming down, participating in communion with all of your brothers and sisters is a proclamation of the gospel. It's putting Jesus first. Nothing so mitigates against selfishness as the Lord's Supper. Nothing calls us away from the world and back to Christ as does the Lord's Supper. This is a holy time when we hear, see, smell, touch, and taste that we are in this together. We are with Christ together. Heaven's a communal place. The wedding feast of the Lamb is a communal event. And the foretaste of heaven, the sense of worship, and the experience of God's presence is a communal event found in the Lord's Supper. Think about that, and then come to his table. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. Thank you that, again, over and over, you show us your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin, see our Savior, see his suffering and death, see the cross, see his resurrection and new life, that we would see him as you want us to see him, as humble, as obedient, as glorious, as beloved by you. Help us to know and believe the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and that he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen.